if you would join me by opening your Bibles to the 16th chapter of Proverbs. We'll be reading the first 15 verses. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. A man's heart, uh, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so up until uh, now, we've been mostly going through the Proverbs verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Um, And that's been because, you know, they've been arranged in such a way where we can do that. As we get through the Proverbs, right, after Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, the Proverbs start getting a little bit more like reading, uh, you know, like when you go to a restaurant and you get the fortune cookie and, you know, you you open the fortune cookie and there's just this random saying uh, and sometimes it's really funny, uh, but uh, sometimes it has some truth to it. Sometimes you're like, how did you know? Um, the wisdoms, uh, the, the Proverbs start reading kind of like fortune cookies. Not exactly, but there's, there's some similarities to that. Uh, just, you know, general truths and wisdom and such. And so for the rest of our study through the Proverbs, um, we're going to be having to break up uh, different sections and tie themes together more thematically and uh, just grouping uh, sayings together from even different Proverbs sometimes in order to... Um, approach them in a way in which it can actually be uh, preached and heard um, and really studied. Uh, So that's with the exception of today. Um, Proverbs 16 uh, verses 1 through 15 is still this unified whole 
Um, it still is, is tied together in such a way that we can really study it uh, as a thematic um, unified passage. And, um, but it's, it's the, the first section uh, in a, a kind of like a mini-series within Proverbs that I wanted to go through. Uh, just going through uh, what I want to call problematic Proverbs. Um, these are the kinds of uh, sayings or Proverbs that we come across that sometimes strike us uh, in ways that make us feel uneasy or uncomfortable. Um, like next week, we're going to talk about, you know, train up a child in the way in which he should go. And that's one of those Proverbs that we're like, what does that really mean? Um, I think I know what it means, but then when we really examine it, we're like, maybe I don't know what it means. And so we're going to look at that next week. Um, but this is a problematic section because it teaches us something that's hard to comprehend. And um, I want to read verses 1 and verses 9 together to really capture this idea because they're like bookends that summarize this pa passage really well and the concept that I want to hit on. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then we, we read verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so what this teaches us is that, you know, people make plans, right? We plan our lives out. We have our one-year plan, you know, well, when are we going on vacation this year? Uh, our five-year plan, our ten-year plan uh, for what we're going to do. Um, but God determines the outcome of our plans. And so we have, in a nutshell, right, in, these, in this section of verses, we have two truths that seem to be contradictory, Right, that God is sovereign and man is responsible. And how do we hold these truths together? They're, they seem so paradoxical. They seem like they cannot be held together. That God is sovereign, man, man is responsible. Or that, as the English expression for this goes, um, man proposes, God disposes. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, but this concept of God's sovereignty, it makes us feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable when we really think about it. And it, it can make us uncomfortable because it infringes upon our, our free will, like our, our choices, our decisions, our actions. Um, and it, if, if God is sovereign and um, he's the one in control, then what does that do with our ability to choose, our ability to do different things and be in, be in charge of our lives, right? Uh, don't we make choices? Aren't we the ones in charge? Um, and so as we, as we think about these concepts, right, we think um, it seems like it has to be one or the other. It has to be either or, that God is sovereign or man is responsible. But the Bible teaches us uh, that both of these are true, that God is sovereign and man is responsible. A person's direction and our actions in this life are ultimately determined by God. And that doesn't deny human responsibility, God's still in charge of his world. So I want to examine this more closely. Um, and so there's a bunch of different passages in the Bible, though, that reveal different things about how God works in his world. And so we read Philippians chapter 2, for example. So Philippians 2, Paul teaches that God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's a passage that's teaching us about what we call sanctification, right? The, the process of God making us more and more uh, conformed into the image of Jesus, his son. But God does not work in us when we can commit sins, right? 
So like first, the process of sanctification, we know God is at work in us, but when we sin, are we going to say God is at work in us? No, we're not going to say that. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I have a tickle in my throat. Um, that's on us, though, uh, not God working in us to do wrong. And so when we come across a passage like Romans 8.28, a different text in the New Testament, we're comforted by the truth that God is the one right in charge. He's the one in control. He's orchestrating all the things that happen in our lives, even the, the, the bad things, like our failures in the Christian life. And he is capable of working all things uh, for his glory and for our good. And so we're comforted by that. He's sovereign. As we think about human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, uh, one of the things that can make this so difficult to acknowledge and to really understand is, is the times that we live in. I'll explain this for a second, but in the 21st century, right, in the, the, the time period in which we get to live, where God has placed us, right, our culture is, it's highly developed. Um, the world we live in is full of calculations and results and outcomes, and everything is just so measured. We wake up in the morning, we look at the weather, and we find, right, the exact weather patterns, right? We know the humidity, we know the temperature, right? So that helps inform what kind of clothes we should wear for the day. Uh, down to the exact hour, right, we can know. We can look up in what region we want to find out what weather, what, what's the temperature over in this state, in this country. And we know, right? There's so much we know just to the exact science of it all. Although I got to admit, last month, I think it was, somebody in San Diego who works for the Weather Channel like totally fell asleep and uh, just did not do their job because it said 2% chance of rain and it was 100% chance of rain and we were indoors worshiping, remember that? Yeah, so somebody did not do their job. But generally, right, we know the exact science of what's going to happen. Um, well, let's think about the prayer uh, that we, we pray regularly, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Um, we pray that, right? And we don't ever think that God's just going to drop a piece of bread from the clouds, right? We're not going to just see bread fall from the sky as we're praying that prayer. Um, and so that bread comes from, um, well, in, in former days, the baker. You get bread from a baker. And uh, in, in other uh, centuries, right, that was because the baker was in close proximity to you. You know, you'd go to the baker and you'd go get your milk over here and do this and that. And um, Martin Luther, for example, in the 16th century, uh, he spoke of the baker as uh, wearing one of God's masks. So God actually, you know, hides himself in the baker. And uh, in order to answer our prayer of giving us this day our daily bread. Um, seeing that connection and that God uses ordinary means to bring us uh, what he desires to give us. And so when we get and eat bread, we acknowledge that he's ultimately the giver of bread, but he used the baker to give us the bread. Now, though, we live in this time, right, where we never meet the baker. Right? We're so far removed from the baker. Uh, we pick up loaves of bread that are, you know, factory-made, in the grocery store uh, or supermarket, right? We don't really see the baking process unless this past year taught us how to bake a sourdough, sourdough loaf like my wife's been doing. Like we have way too much sourdough all the time. Uh, it's so good though. But, uh, you know, so I see by hand the baking process, but normally we don't really see that process, right? We just buy it from the store. Um, 
and uh, just like we don't really hunt and kill and skin animals. I mean, how many people in this room do that? I don't see anybody. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm just raising my hand because I wanted to see if anybody did that. Nobody does that, yeah. Um, I mean, in different regions, people do. It's not like it's never done, but right, we don't really chop up our meat anymore, right? We go to the butcher and we get our meat that's pre-chopped, right? That's, that's all the ranchers and the butchers that do all that stuff. And so we go to the store and we grab it from the refrigerated section that's like super temperature managed or from the freezer, we get our meat, right? And uh, in other cultures, in other time periods, we were much more subject to the elements, right? So whether it rained or it snowed, these were things that really bothered us um, and, and were sometimes dangerous, right? We'd worry about um, if we had enough firewood before nightfall so we don't freeze to death at night. And now, though, we control our temperatures with thermostats, right? We can set our, our home, right? When we get home, like we, have, we can use our smartphones now. And, you know, you, you can, from here, you can say, oh, I want my home to be 73 degrees when I get home. And, you know, and we can do that, right? We have so much control over the elements in that sense. So we're so far removed. It makes, us, makes it so difficult to see the connection, to notice the fact that God is actually at work through means. He's actually at work. And that the, the technology that, that surrounds us kind of blinds us from that fact that God is in, 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 in control, that he's working, that he's always been giving us our daily bread, that he works even through the pharmaceutical companies to give us this day our daily pill, right, to help us with our depression or our anxiety. But how often do we associate our experience receiving these gifts with receiving them from the hand of God? Right? How often do we acknowledge that? I think if we're honest, right, not all that often. Um, usually we just go through, we're like, oh, thanks for the bread, thanks for this. Actually, go pick up the groceries. I got to go get this, I got to go, you know, and we just, we're so going through our lives without acknowledgement to God, who is the giver of all good things. We might confess on Sunday morning that Jesus is Lord, but by Tuesday morning, we're checking Twitter and the news, right? We're trusting in the stock market where we're obsessed with what's happening in the news to deliver us from our suffering, or we are distracting ourselves to death, right? Hulu, Netflix, all that other stuff, to escape from our boredom. But the scriptures teach us that God is actively involved in all of history, and he often works in these ordinary, indirect, mediated ways. And in this way, his terrifying sovereignty, I mean, let's be honest, right? Someone is absolutely, supremely sovereign. That is a terrifying truth when you think about it. Um, I mean, at least if that person is um, not good, that would be absolutely terrifying. Like if it were like my toddler, um, you know, if he were in charge of the universe, that would be terrible. Um, I mean, it would be great for him. <laughs> We'd all be his servants, <laughs> giving him candy and everything else and ice cream, and it would be great for him. Not, not great for us, like Bruce Almighty kind of thing. Um, but God is good, so it's a good thing. But because he's good, right, he partially hides himself through these ordinary means, right? So we're not terrified of his sovereignty. So we can receive his gifts with joy, and we can receive them uh, living each day in trust. I want to point out, as verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Right, so even in this verse, verse 3, we see this tension being described again. That we're to work 
and we're to work thinking of the glory of God, but it's the Lord who's going to make our plans successful. He brings the outcome, as verse 1 mentioned. And that's a tension, right? In one verse, we're commanded, commit your work to the Lord. In another verse, we're told God is the one who establishes this. Well, which is it? Right? Is man responsible or is God in control? I'm confused. And the Bible wants us to see that it's both, right? Trust what we do by doing it. Leave the outcome to God. That God is sovereign and man is responsible. It's like with the, with the command in Scripture um, that the disciples uh, are charged with, right? Making more disciples, Matthew 28. And if God is sovereign, we might think, well, why do we even try to make disciples? Can't God just make disciples on his own? Just make it all happen? Like, what's the point in evangelizing? Why would we even do that? Why would we witness, right? If God's in control of who believes, why would I share my faith with somebody else? But the command is there for us to do this. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, right? That God actually uses the means of baptizing and teaching and using our voices and using our witness the testimony of our lives, to bring in more disciples. Far from discouraging us, right, from planning and doing and activity and praying and making decisions, right, this should be a motivating factor that we should work all the more hard in our lives uh, because God is working to accomplish his purposes. Um, there's a theological term that is like, I don't do this that often, but I think it's an important one. Um, it's the doctrine of concursus. Let's just say it, because it's kind of a very weird term that we don't use in our everyday life. I mean, it was the last time you said concursus to anybody. Probably never. I've never really used it. Let's do it. Concursus. All right. Concursus. So this is the idea that uh, specific actions or events, uh, in every action or event, there's both divine and human agency happening at the same time, okay? Concursus. It comes from a Latin word. Um, the theologian Thomas Aquinas saw that on the one hand, right, the, the Bible teaches that God has predestined, right, he has pre-planned all things that are going to take place in history. Um, and on the other hand, it attributes actions and decisions to human beings, Right, to human agency. And so to explain this phenomenon, um, Aquinas employed, he used categories that uh, uh, another philosopher uh, from way, way back in Greek antiquity named Aristotle. Has anybody ever heard of Aristotle? All right, a couple people. Sweet. Aristotle's a cool guy. He's cool. Um, so he used his understanding here of uh, primary and secondary causes. Right? This is the guy who had the unmoved mover, if anybody's a philosophy nerd out there. Um, so he, he used the unmoved mover, you know, that concept, right? So primary and secondary causes. And um, following Aquinas and the reformers, uh, they also thought it was a great way to consolidate this biblical teaching on this topic, right? So I'm going to read um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which our, our church body, right, and all the churches in our denomination, we, we confess that this is what we believe. So uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, we read, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to path, pass, 
<clears throat> Sorry. I'm so used to the old English, it just, the THs just roll off the tongue, you know? Um, yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes, right? There's the language. Second causes taken away, but rather established. So we have that language of primary and secondary causes, which, let's use that word that we just learned a little bit a few moments ago. It is what? Concursus. Yes. It's awesome. Learning some deep stuff right now. Deep stuff. So in this way, right, we affirm that God is sovereign. Right? God is in control of all things. And yet people are responsible for actions committed. Good actions, bad actions. Right? Um, when somebody gets sick, right, we'll, we'll often we'll hear... Uh, you might hear us praying for God to heal them. Um, just as we're going to be praying for God to heal them, we're also going to be asking this person, hey, have you had your doctor's appointment yet? Right? How is your treatment going? Right? Those things are not contradictory. Right? God actually works through means, through the baker, through the pharmaceutical company, through the doctor. Right? Um, and uh, both God and doctors are healers. One is a secondary cause, uh, the doctor. The other is a primary cause, that's God. And so when we see God's hand in everyday life operating through ordinary means, right, we're able to give him proper praise and thanks in our everyday life occurrences. We can see the hand of God moving. We can praise him in those moments. And so whatever's going on in our lives, from the, the first time we rode a bicycle to our wedding day, uh, to the worst days, the ones that we want to forget, to the like, best moments, or the mundane days of our lives, the times that we just clock in and clock out, and we're like, that was another day, another day, another dollar. Each of these days are days in which God is working very intricately in our lives, that he's always sovereign over everything. And earlier I mentioned that this teaching about God's sovereignty makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, it should instead be an extremely great source of comfort to us that God is in charge. That should give us a lot of confidence in our everyday life, knowing that he's in charge, that he's in control. It should give us a lot of hope, too. I mean, to think that my life is not an accident. Right? I wasn't made by chance, but I was created for a purpose. That purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I was made for that. I actually have value inherently. My life actually matters. Your life matters. Because God made you. And if you've ever suffered in your life, which I guarantee you, each of us have suffered in different ways. You know, we've experienced heartbreak or the loss of a loved one or disappointment or pain. God's sovereignty means that he can turn that suffering that you have experienced, that you have felt that is very, very real and hurts so much. And he can make that suffering actually good. The life is not always going to be a dumpster fire. 
like it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out better because God's the one in charge. Amen? Let's think about how awful it must have been for Joseph in the Old Testament. This is a dude who, he was mistreated by his brothers. I mean, he was sold as a slave by his very own blood brothers. That's got to stink so bad. Like, that's such a bummer to be sold by your bros. And then um, later on, though, right, God uses that personal suffering to Joseph to make him like the right-hand man of Pharaoh. He's basically in charge of this great nation. And then he ends up saving not only his brothers, but the entire nation of Israel. Such a great story of, of, of redemption and how God works in the midst of suck. I mean, really? Like that God can turn our suck into great, awesome stuff? Um, Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, you planned evil, but God planned it for good, right? That these human actions were taking place and unfolding, and yet God is sovereign over all of those things, and he's still orchestrating it according to his plans, which were for good. How good is it to know that nothing can stop God's plan for this lost and broken world? And nothing can stop God's plans for your life as a Christian. That God in Christ is your heavenly Father who holds you in the palm of his hand and he's not a cruel God. He's not your toddler playing with matches over your life, right? But he's a good God. <clears throat> Man. Maybe it's just being indoors. So used to preaching outdoors, you have this fresh air just like constantly, like the trees. Miss the trees. That was the best part. All right. Um, there's a verse, uh, verse 4, that could really mess with us. I want to read it. Uh, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. I say that's a verse that could really mess us up, right? Because what does that mean? Uh, when we're talking about God being sovereign over all things, right? This could be a really tough one to swallow. Um, in the verse... Is it saying that God created the wicked for destruction? Because if that's the case, then we're talking about a toddler playing with, with matches, right? Um, why would God make people to be destroyed? Why would he purpose that? I think it's best to read this verse in the context as saying, God has included even the punishment of the wicked as part of his plans. And so God is just, and he's not a God who's going to let evil go unpunished, which is actually a really good thing when we think about it. But verse 5, it continues to say, Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an, an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Right? So God is just, and he's going to punish those who are wrongdoers. These verses, at the heart of it all, really bring us back to the initial issue about free will. That God's sovereignty makes us uncomfortable because it infringes upon our free will. But we don't have wills that are absolutely free. I want to talk about this for a second. Uh, because our wills are constrained by our very own nature. So ever since the fall of Adam, our wills have been bent towards sin. Unfortunately, 
right? We are sinners and we sin. And so we can only make choices that are in, in accordance with our nature, which is, let me put it this way. I am completely, sovereignly free to pick up a 400-pound barbell and snatch it over my head. I'm totally free to do that, except I'm constrained by my nature, and I'm probably going to get crushed if I try to do that. Or I'm going to pull out my back because I can't lift 400. I can't snatch 400 pounds. Maybe like 100. <laughs> like I'm not Matt Frazier or Rich Froning. Like those guys can do it, um, but I am constrained by my nature. Uh, and so, since we are all sinners by nature, right? We cannot choose not to sin. Right? We're going to sin. Uh, we're always going to sin one way or another. Even if we do something good, it's like my motives were slanted a little bit. I was kind of selfish when I did that, right? So God doesn't ever have to tell us uh, to sin, right? We're already on the path of sinning. In the Bible, it often talks about God hardening hearts. So uh, usually that's after a person has already hardened his heart. So we can think of Pharaoh in Egypt, since I mentioned Pharaoh earlier. Pharaoh, um, time and time again, right, uh, with the whole, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, I'm going to let you go. And then he's like, nah, just psych, I'm not going to let you go. Right? Over and over and over again. He keeps hardening his heart over and over and over again. And eventually, what happens? We, we read this text that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that was after Pharaoh had hardened his heart like countless times. That there's this like extra hardening going on. The Bible never says a person softens their own heart, though. Right? That's activity that is reserved for God alone. God alone, as Ezekiel or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets say, he gives us a new heart. I love the language of um, the prophet where he says, he takes our heart of stone and he makes it a heart of flesh. Right? Something that was so hard now it's, it's fleshly, it's, it's softened. Um, it's really great language there. But there's this difference between how God hardens hearts and how he softens hearts. And so when he softens a heart, he gives them a redeemed, new, clean heart. When he hardens a heart, he's giving that person over to what they already want. Romans 1.24 teaches us, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to all kinds of impurity, right? So he doesn't cause those who uh, want to sin to sin, but he hands them over to what they already want. Theodore Beza, a, um, uh, another theologian, he said and explained this, uh, saying that uh, permission is a correct term to use if we mean that God does not act in evil, but gives them up to Satan in their own lusts. Now, what makes the gospel such great news is that we're not worthy of God's mercy, and yet God's, God shows us mercy anyways. Right? He, he's full of grace and truth. But not because of anything we've done, solely because he has acted favorably towards us. Verse 6, it teaches, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So even though we know that God must judge sin because he's just, right? He's not going to let any evil go unpunished. He's also this God who atones for sins. 
God has turned away his wrath from our sin by the blood of a substitute who stood in our place and was judged for us. In the Old Testament, there's a bunch of um, uh, how it talks about this, how it talks about atonement is usually through animal sacrifice. So animals were sacrificed and, and um, you know, substituted uh, in the place of Israel, right? And the, the high priest made atonement for sins. All of that activity pointed forward to the New Testament, the concept of Jesus coming, the once-for-all sacrifice, right? As John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? So Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice who stands in our place. And it's this gospel word that, that comes to us that, 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 that has the power to change us and make us want to turn away from evil, want to walk the way of wisdom, want to fear the Lord because he's rescued us. But it's here at the cross of Christ where atonement happened, where we see clearly the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people, right? It's on full display. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching this, this sermon, and he says to this listening crowd, he says, verse 23 of Acts 2, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. People are held responsible for their wicked acts in the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And yet it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that all of this happened. Sovereignty, responsibility. Right? Both things happening. What's the word? Concursus. Concursus. This is great. Love theology. So good. Um, so we see these first and second causes, the language of the Westminster Confession. It, it, it begins to make sense. Uh, a few chapters later, Acts 4, we hear that the believers later praised God and they were saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Right? Once again, sovereignty, responsibility. What's that word? Concurses. All right. So this passage doesn't um, tell us how God decreed their wicked sin to take place while still holding them responsible. It, it, it simply states that this is the case. There's nothing more we, that we can do than receive this clear biblical teaching that God is sovereign, people are responsible. God is not the author of evil or sin, yet he's decreed everything that's going to happen. And he's permitted evil to happen. I want to say for years I've really struggled with the problem of evil as it's called, right? Theodicy. How can God allow evil to happen if he's a good God? That question has like plagued me. I first started studying it when I was a college student, and I like kept up the study of it and tried to find good answers, and uh, read so many takes on the problem of evil, and uh, thought about it on my own, tried to answer it in my own intelligent ways, which were totally unintelligent. Uh, and the best answer I could come up with is what Christians have held, like St. Augustine and uh, the Reformers, and what they've long taught. So Augustine, he said, God knew that it pertained 
more to his most almighty goodness, even to bring good out of evil, than not to permit evil to be. It was better that he allowed for evil to happen than to not ever let it happen. So we can never say that God is the author of evil. James won't let us in the New Testament, right? God is not the author of sin. Um, we also can't say that he's a passive spectator of evil. That he's just watching it all unfold and he's unable to do anything about it. Far from that, God has actually actively proved that he permits evil to happen because he's already at a very great personal cost to himself in the death of his son Jesus, in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, he has determined to overcome evil for his great glory and our ultimate good. That is why he's allowed evil to happen. And I think that's a great answer. So that means your life, right, from cradle to the grave, it's included in God's eternal decree. That God actually does pay mind, right? He does pay attention to us. That he cares for us. That even the number of hairs on your head, whether they're turning really gray like mine, uh, or you don't have hair on your head, um, or you do have a lot of hair, it's curly hair, or whatever, God knows the number of hairs that you have on your head. And they're all sovereign, right? They're all um, uh, uh, numbered by his sovereign wisdom and his eternal plan. The last five verses of our passage this morning uh, speak repeatedly of a king. It pictures this king who's ruling in a very sovereign way over all things. He's executing justice. He's dispensing kindness to those he rules over. Jesus is the only king who rules perfectly. His kingdom's righteous. He's full of justice. And if you turn your life over to him, if you entrust your life to him, you're forever going to have the favor of a king shining upon you. Because Jesus is sovereign, you can firmly know, right, as um, the famous hymn by the Gettys, it's, it's a fairly new hymn when you think about like, the span of when hymns have been being created, uh, but it's very famous. The Gettys wrote it, and it goes, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Right? Nothing can snatch me from my father's hand. Till he returns or calls me home, Jesus commands my destiny. Right? That is your hope. Cling to it. Find comfort in the sovereignty of God. That God's got this. Let's pray. Father, even as we come before you in prayer right now, we're already presupposing that you're sovereign over everything that happens in our lives. Why would we even bother to come to you in prayer if nothing happened, if nothing could change? when we talk to you, when we plead with you? Why would we come before you if you weren't 
actively listening and operating in our lives. When we pray, we show that you're the one who's in sovereign. You're the one who is sovereign. You're in control. We pray for our neighbors to come to know you. We're asking for your sovereign intervention in their lives and our own to create a new heart out of a heart of stone. Help us to have a greater trust in you, to have even more confidence today and tomorrow that you're in control of all things. We pray that this would embolden, it would enable, it would empower us to make disciples of all nations wherever we go. We pray that this church body would be a real embassy of grace, of your grace on this earth. That people would know that you are God whenever they come to worship here with us, whenever they spend time with the people of our church family. Because you're active here, you're at work. Even now you're working through means, ministering to us. So we thank you and we praise you for your sovereign invisible hand we thank you that you work all things even using our failures for our good and for your glory we pray this in the name of jesus amen